Institute to feature two stories about innovative people in Maine who are sustainably harvesting and growing products from the sea. First up, we're talking about seaweed, specifically kelp, that tall brown seaweed that grows like forests below the low tide line, and the harvesters who get kelp to market while offering economic opportunity and environmental sustainability. Let's let Galen Koch, the producer of From the Sea Up, take it from here. The Island Institute presents From the Sea Up, stories of sustainability from Maine's coastal and island communities. I'm your host and the producer of this series, Galen Koch. In this six-part limited series of From the Sea Up, we explore the diverse array of sustainable seafood that makes up Maine's coastal economy and supports the state's fishermen, aquaculturists, sea farmers, and working waterfront businesses. This week, we're talking all about vegetables. You may not think that vegetables would be part of a series about sustainable seafood, but we're not talking about just any old vegetable. We're talking about the oldest vegetable, the fast-growing, nutrient-dense, regenerative vegetables of the sea. Along Maine's coast, there are lots of companies, farmers, and harvesters who are finding, growing, and selling sea vegetables. There are small-scale wild harvest companies like Atlantic Holdfast and larger wild harvest operations like Maine Coast Sea Vegetables. There are businesses selling nutraceuticals derived from ocean plants like Source Maine and large-scale processing operations making fertilizers from wild kelp like North American kelp. If you know how to identify them, you'll see that the Maine Coast is chock full of edible sea plants. There's dulse and Irish moss and sea lettuce. There's nori and horsetail kelp and rockweed and alaria or winged kelp. And there's native skinny kelp and sugar kelp, both the stars of this week's episode. For the purposes of our episode today, we'll just call both of these species kelp. Sugar kelp, skinny kelp, and winged kelp are the three species most commonly grown on kelp farms here in Maine. Although cultivating kelp is not new on a global scale, the Chinese and Japanese have been doing it for hundreds of years. It is a pretty new phenomenon on Maine's coast. The first kelp farm started operating in Casco Bay in 2010. Now, according to the Maine Department of Marine Resources, the DMR, there are 94 kelp farms operating along Maine's coast. And the pounds of harvested kelp reported to the DMR have risen from 14,582 pounds in 2015 to over 280,000 pounds in 2019. So why are we talking about kelp aquaculture? Well, first, it's obviously a rapidly growing industry on our coast. And specifically, sugar kelp and skinny kelp are the two species grown and harvested by the fishermen farmer partners who work with Atlantic Sea Farms, or ASF, one of the companies that has led the way for kelp's rapid rise in the main economy. Today, we're going to meet some of the team at ASF, and I'm going to tell you all about kelp because it's just truly an amazing plant for you, for me, and for the planet. Here's Bree Warner, the CEO and president of Atlantic Sea Farms. We're not using fresh water. We're not using fertilizer inputs. We are growing a food that is making the environment better than it was with zero inputs on making that happen. And it's, it's removing carbon and nitrogen locally. But I almost think that's even less compelling to what it's not doing, which is it's not making, it's, it's making the world better, but it's also not making the world worse, which is what all of our food does. We'll get more into the specifics of kelp growing a little later. But first, let me introduce Brie Warner. In casual conversation with folks who work in Maine's marine economy, Bree's name is often followed by powerhouse or visionary. She is truly one of those leaders who seems made for the role she's in. And she came to the position as CEO of Atlantic Sea Farms in a sort of fortuitous way. At the time I was working with the Island Institute and we had an investment fund and we invested in Ocean Approved, um, which is Atlantic Sea Farms. Ocean Approved was the first commercial seaweed farm in the country and they hadn't really grown in 10 years because they had these two small farms. And we said, do we have a deal for you? At that time, when Brie was working at the Island Institute, the organization ran the Aquaculture Business Development Program, educating fishermen on how to get started in ocean farming. 
we have all these amazing fishermen on the coast that could be doing this work, um, work with us to make this supply chain happen. And, and the rest is history. I was asked to take over in 2018 after I found a transition. And that's, that's where we are now with 24 partner farmers along the coast and, and really making a meaningful difference in the way that uh, people can get supplemental income sources in the off season. ASF's model of scaling kelp production in Maine has a very specific mission to help support and encourage more lobstermen to farm kelp. They work with 24 partner farmers, as they call them, fishermen who cultivate sea vegetables all along Maine's coastline. Justin Papke of Long Island, Maine, is one of ASF's partner farmers. Justin participated in Island Institute's Aquaculture Business Development Program before applying for his first experimental kelp aquaculture lease in Casco Bay. It was during the program that he was introduced to the various kinds of ocean farming available to fishermen. I talked with Justin on his boat in Portland Harbor. We saw mussels and we saw oysters and we saw kelp. There was a couple of people that were doing, they were hanging scallops and it all looked super neat, but the one that seemed like it would fit the best with the way our fishery being lobster works, it seemed like kelp was the perfect fit. There's a reason why Bree Warner saw a lot of potential to scale Atlantic sea farms by working with local Maine fishermen. Kelp farming just fits with lobstering. So the way you seed kelp is you seed it in the fall, like right around Halloween, and then all winter it grows. And the wintertime is our slow season, and the springtime is our pretty slow season. And when you harvest it, you harvest it uh, April and May. So it fit perfectly with lobstering, and then we have all the rope already from lobstering and all of the buoys from when we have our traps inside. And so it was a perfect fix. We had all the rope and all the buoys. We have 5,000 plus lobster license holders on the state of Maine. And in Maine, if you have a lobster license, you have to be on your boat to fish with that license. So there's no sort of like big fleets. It's if you have a boat, you're on it. It's all owner operator. You, these are all individual business owners along the coast. And they are super qualified. They have the tractors of the sea, these giant boats that they use for, 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 um, for lobstering. And they have a tremendous amount of not only social capital on this coastline, but also uh, knowledge about the water and that they live it every day. They live and breathe it. And so to think about what they could do on the water is like, you know, they, the potential is enormous. These, these folks have been fishing for way more than lobster for all of history until very recently. And this is a very new phenomenon. So for me, aquaculture really becomes an opportunity for fishermen to be who they have always been, which is not lobster fishermen, but fishermen, people who do several different species. Kelp farming isn't necessarily super dangerous as far as fisheries go, but it still requires the farmer to have a knowledge of the ocean, weather, tides and currents, and boat operation. Maine's kelp farms are located fairly close to the coastline, on standard and experimental aquaculture leases that must be approved by both the Maine Department of Marine Resources and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Justin Papke has two farms, both in Casco Bay. The way we grow kelp is we have a mooring on each end and then we have a thousand foot long line that we seed that's seven feet below the surface. So it's weighted and buoyed so it stays roughly that I don't know, six to ten feet below the surface. Justin's kelp farm near Shabig is organized and colorful, with a rainbow of brightly painted buoys holding up the long lines of kelp. The kelp is seeded in the fall. Every year, Justin can decide whether or not to buy his seed from Atlantic Sea Farms. Kelp is pretty low maintenance when it's in the water, but its reproductive cycle is not so straightforward. So my name is Theusa Skevitz, and I am a kelp scientist. Allow Theu for just a moment to take us from the romance of the kelp farm into the incredibly important and pretty riveting world of kelp research. Theu is the Seaweed Supply and Innovation Manager at Atlantic Sea Farms. That means... I run the nursery. Basically, all of the kelp that we grow starts out in a nursery in, in these uh, large seawater tanks 
where we grow the microscopic stages and then we give those to our partner farmers who then grow them to these large beautiful kelp blades then the second role which is more forward focused is i am going to be increasing and enhancing the diversity of what we offer and finding what tastes the best what is the best for harvesting and what does uh, the market want for seaweed products. And then the third and final thing that I'm uh, working on here is taking and, and applying some more rigorous science to what we do and what we are able to do in terms of sustainability and you know, future directions for where we can go. So beyond what species are offered, you know, what markets and, and, uh, and just tying the science into our business. Thew's work at ASF is a little bit of a secret, since if everything were public, it probably wouldn't be innovation. But the kelp nursery is not only something he can talk about, it's also one really, really important aspect of the work Atlantic Sea Farms does. Kelp is much different than most of the organisms that that uh, people think about uh, and how that grows. I mean, if you think about humans or mammals or even plants from your garden, you kind of expect that each generation looks the same. So you look like your parents, more or less. Your parents look like your grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. Kelp have this, what's called alternation of generations, where each generation is completely different than the previous generation and they flip back and forth so we have when you think of a kelp blade that's the sporophyte stage so this is a diploid individual that's quite large they can be several feet to in some cases hundreds of feet long the next stage, the next generation is actually microscopic. So you go from these, these very large uh, autotrophs, these very large blades to the following generation are microscopic. And that's why we have to do this in a nursery setting because we have to go from large blades and then there's an entire generation that's just microscopic that grows on twine. That microscopic generation of kelp will grow only a couple millimeters in diameter and will go through its entire life cycle in the controlled conditions of the nursery. When that generation reproduces, the next gen will grow into the large kelp blades. Until those form the juvenile uh, blades, which will grow up to be our harvestable crop. And that's the stage when we give them out to our partner farmers. Atlantic Sea Farms will give partner farmers spools of PVC wrapped in special, ready-to-grow kelp twine. They take the kelp spools and they unwind the string, the twine, onto these thousand-foot ropes. It's the same rope that they use for lobstering that's strung between buoys, just running horizontally. And then from there, the uh, we've done our job well. The kelp will just, you know, let nature take its course, and it takes, uh, you know, the natural nutrients and uh, everything from the Gulf of Maine and sunlight, and they'll go from these very small, tiny little blades growing on the kelp twine all the way up to about 10 feet or so in size when we harvest them six months later. So kelp can be extraordinarily fast growing and, and you can get a very dense crop in a fairly short period of time. Once the lines of seeded twine are in the water, the fishermen farmers play the waiting game until harvest time. Even though Justin's farms are in fairly protected waters in Casco Bay, he checks on the kelp every week. In the dead of winter in Maine, even the most protected locations can be pretty darn sketchy. Those lines that are stretched out for a thousand feet, when the tide comes and goes, or when it gets rough out and Mother Nature decides to throw you a curveball, they don't always stay straight and apart like they should. So we'll go out once a week and we'll check to make sure that the couple lines that we have that are supposed to be 10 or 15 feet apart are the whole way down. So when you look at it and it looks right, it looks like, like kind of like an Olympic swimming pool, right? You'll see, you'll look down and you'll see, oh, look, here's all the lanes, here's all the rows, all our lines, each 
line has a different buoy color. If you look down and say, oh, the red line's good. Oh, the blue line's good. We went out this winter and we're like, huh, the red and the blue line look awfully close. So we had the big boat. We had to go get the little boat to row in to see what was going on. And it turned out we had a tree go through it in the tide. So I'm in there and I had a friend of mine on the lobster boat and I'm in the rowboat tying the tree to the boat so we could pull the tree back out of the farm so that it would stop tangling the lines up on me. Shifting from fishing to farming part of the year is no small thing. And Justin is, first and foremost, a lobsterman. But he's found joy in cultivating kelp. At this point, I call it my hobby. Um, no, it's fun. It's a total change of pace. It's kind of neat. You can go out and, just like when you set a garden up at your house, you go out and every couple weeks when you pull it up, you look at it, it gets a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And then right about in March, when the days get real long and they start to get sunny you can go out Tuesday and you can go out Wednesday and you can see the difference between Tuesday and Wednesday. It'll grow inches in a day when it gets to that point and that's pretty neat. Once the kelp blades reach a certain size, not too big, not too small, just right for ASF's processing needs, Justin and his crew will harvest the kelp in April or May. The first day we did it, the first day we did it, I was like in the manual and the way people had done it previously, it was you put your, your little boat alongside the lobster boat and just like you're hauling a lobster trap, you just hang the kelp over the block and as it comes up, you stand in the little boat and you cut it off into crates and then you put pass it up to the big boat and you put it in bags. Like, oh, this looks super, super easy. You don't have to do anything to the boat. And then when we did it the first day, and I said, well, we're never doing this again. After after moving the kelp, I don't know, six times to get it from point A to point D or C or G or whatever it got to by the time it went from hanging off the line to in the bags on the truck where it's supposed to be, we went and we put a mast and boom on the boat. And now instead of picking it up, and cutting it into the little boat and then taking it out of the little boat into the big boat and then carrying it across the boat and putting it in the bag. Now we just haul it up over the back of the big boat on the mast and we cut it straight into the bag and we take out steps A through D and we go straight to G. Each full bag of kelp is a thousand pounds. And if Justin Papke buys his kelp seed from Atlantic Sea Farms, then he agrees to sell his entire harvest back to the company for processing. This is one of the aspects of ASF's partner farmer program that is not only super appealing, but it's what makes the whole system work. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, we're featuring a couple of stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up highlighting sustainable Maine seafood. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. Now, back to the story about Maine kelp. One of the trickiest things about kelp farming is the actual processing and selling of kelp. That's one of the reasons that just over five years ago, there was so little kelp grown in Maine. Here's Bree Warner. Seaweed is not um, oysters. It's not like you can simply pull it out of the water and sell it. There's a very limited market for fresh seaweed that's just right out of the out of, of the farm in the back of someone's truck. And in Maine, that market for fresh kelp or edible sea veggies is pretty saturated. With hand harvesters and some of the small-scale businesses that exist in the state, there are already great ways to get sea vegetables at your local farmer's market or co-op. But kelp is in high demand when processed. There are valuable products that you can't sell right off a truck. And so there needs to be somebody that can actually manufacture that product. And there needs to be a ton of investment, a ton in the marketing and the value-added production side of things. And so up to this point, the reason the seaweed industry in Maine or in the U.S. in general hasn't taken off is because there hasn't been this kind of buyer that people trust. Um, And here along the coast of Maine... You know, integrity and trust is everything. Nobody's going to put a farm out in the water and uh, spend a ton of money and time 
for someone who they don't know if they're sure they're going to pick up or not. And and they know with us that we will. And we've proven that out year over year, even last year in the face of COVID, when 90% of our seaweed um, customers dropped out overnight. Uh, you know, we still showed up at the dock and that was March right before harvest season. And we were still there for every single one of our farmers. And that has really been how we've, we've scaled on the, on the water side is because people know we, we do what we say we're going to do. Um, and that we're trying to find desperately in an exciting and urgent way. And it's been super successful of building an entirely new market for someone that's never been out there available to American consumers before. Atlantic Sea Farms works with partner farmers who buy seed from them. And in return, they guarantee to buy not some, but all of the fishermen farmers' kelp. It's a reliable source of income during the off-season. I've been holding out on a pretty crazy statistic. Remember how I said that in 2019, the DMR reported 280,000 pounds of kelp harvested in Maine? Well, this year, 2021... Atlantic Sea Farms brought in just under 675,000 pounds of kelp. 675,000 pounds, all from individual partner farmers working on small kelp farms. It is truly mind-blowing. And to handle the sheer volume of processing, ASF is moving to a brand new 27,000 square foot facility where they'll continue to make their seaweed products. So what we do is is we blanch the kelp for three of our products, um, which knocks off any sort of that like low tide taste that some Americans are not accustomed to, you know, the ocean flavor that is kelp because it is kelp and it grows in the ocean. The blanched kelp is used in ASF seaweed salad, shredded kelp and frozen kelp cubes. I put one of those in my smoothie every day. ASF also makes a seaweed based kimchi and a sea beet kraut both of which have a more seaweed-forward flavor profile. We do everything here in Maine, and we, we know the line it was taken from and the day it came in from what farmer and what part of the ocean in every product that people get. Each of our products has a picture of a farmer on the back to talk about where, where it came from, and uh, we're really proud of our traceability, and we know, you know everything from the moment it was born into a seed to the moment it goes into a package. With all this kelp coming out of our oceans, it's no wonder that chefs and even home cooks are innovating the ways that kelp is used in Western cuisines. At Cheval in Portland, Maine, chefs Damien Sansonetti and Ilma Lopez are using kelp in ways that I could never imagine. Damien shows me a kelp brioche, kelp pickles, and kelp in pâté. So we fold the kelp into the actual pâté, and you can see little little um, dots of the kelp on the pate and then they even make a kelp pasta that you can buy at Rosemont Market if you happen to live in Portland, Maine. You can you can taste the difference in the pasta. You you really can taste the difference in it. Um, and it does have kind of like that little oceanic umami to it. And, that's and because of the umami deliciousness, the pasta can be prepared in the simplest way at home. And that's why when we cook this, when we recommend people to cook with it, this is great, like, simply prepared or with, um, like, other things that come from the sea. Like, we're going to prepare a dish with it with um, local sea urchin and local piquito crab. If I haven't convinced you to eat kelp yet, and I really hope I have, but if you still need a little nudge, I have one more trick up my sleeve. It's called the halo effect. Here's Thew, ASF's kelp scientist, to explain. And so when we start out with teeny tiny kelp blades that weigh enough, basically nothing, and then we harvest these 10-foot beautiful sugar kelp blades, all of that that we're pulling out is uh, carbon and, and uh, biomass that we're removing out of the Gulf of Maine. Around the kelp farm, they're just having this massive growth, and all of that growth is fueled by photosynthesis, and they're taking carbon out of the immediate environment. And you can actually measure the water around a kelp farm and find that it's becoming less acidic as the kelp is growing. And so it produces this sort of halo effect around the kelp farm. And uh, Nicole Price, Dr. Nicole Price at Bigelow Labs was, was studying this and showed that you can actually see uh, with just measuring pH that the water is getting less acidic around a kelp farm 
One of the biggest impacts of ocean acidification on our local ecosystem is that the more acidic the water, the harder it is for mussels, oysters, clams, lobsters, and other shellfish to make a hard calcium carbonate shell. And they looked at, at mussel shells next to kelp farms and then away from kelp farms, and they saw that the mussel shells were actually thicker in uh, mussels that were right next to kelp farms. All of that was attributed to the change in pH that you get from the kelp growing there. There's still much to be learned about the benefits of kelp farms on our local oceans and ecosystems. These studies are relatively recent in the science world. But even the idea that you can grow something, a process that takes energy, and in the growing of that thing, you could change the ocean and planet for the better, well, it's just inspiring. And it makes me want to take a big bite out of a kelp blade. Despite the benefits of kelp farming to our economy, our bodies, and the ocean, kelp aquaculture still gets some pushback. Applying for an aquaculture lease is a long and tedious process, a process that ensures that farms are in the proper location, out of the way of fishing gear, and potential use conflicts. But there are coastal property owners who oppose mussel, oyster, and kelp farms. They just don't want to look at them. And for the sustainability of our fisheries, for the sustainability of our marine economy, this is concerning. Our coast is a working waterfront coast. One of the things Mainers love about the coast, or even summer people love about the coast, is that you see your lobster boats there. There is a certain romance to the lobster boat, to the nostalgic feeling it stirs of tough old salts pulling traps onto their dories. And folks who live and choose to visit Maine look forward to seeing that fishery, our fishery, in action. But what if we chose to think about the future of the working waterfront a little differently? We, all of us, fishermen, processors, chefs, people from away, local Mainers, we all want to see a thriving marine economy and one that allows fresh, sustainable, delicious sea products to sustain our working waterfronts. And a sustainable working waterfront is diverse. In every case that I've heard of, when riparian landowners oppose the lease, and then that lease goes in, they're buying oysters from that person a year later and saying, I'm really glad you're here. And I think people get very fearful of the unknown, but it's actually just the known. What, what is scary is the unknown of what could happen if we don't diversify. Our Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of oceans in the whole world. And we are dependent on the lobster fishery. In no world do I think lobsters are going away, but man, I do think that that is a hard way to live when you know you basically make all of your income in a six month period and you can't depend on anything about it. And that that is like aquaculture is hope to have that future 40, 50 years from now. I want my grandkids to be able to see working waterfronts in the state of Maine. And that's what I look up the coast and sea is just see an entire coast full of hope and if we can just harness that hope into something that's progressively thinking about new ways to work on the water that will bring us back to who we've always been i think we've won sometimes saying i support maine's working waterfront can feel like an ambiguous phrase what does that mean what does that look like in the case of kelp, it means supporting a relatively new and thriving fishery by both eating kelp and recognizing the enormous potential of these farms, not only for the environment and our health, but for the livelihoods of fishermen and their families. For Justin Papke, growing kelp is more than just a hobby. It's insurance for the future. Everything, everything about it is great. It's great for the environment. It's great for the water quality. It cleans the water, it pulls all the carbon out, just like the plant does out of the air, but because it's growing so fast, it takes so much more out, so much quicker. Supplemental income, it's something else to do in the, the off season. So we make all our money on the water. So anything that we can do to benefit it at all, we'll try. Um, kelp fits in beautifully because you make money while you're doing it. Um, 
but we're trying to every day you're trying to make the ocean better tomorrow than you found it today the first in today's two-story episode of Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio. Today's stories come from the Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up, produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast. Let's move now from seaweed to the world of the American eel, that species that drives our legendary elver or baby eel fishery and a new aquaculture startup for this main-grown fish. Here again is Galen Koch to introduce us to the American eel. This week, we're diving headfirst into the world of a very mysterious, mythical, and enigmatic fish, the American eel. It may surprise you that eels are indeed fish. They have scales, you just can't feel them or see them, and tiny fins and gills. But the eel evokes a certain feeling that other fish may not. It's slippery slimy, snake-like quality has led this fish to be both feared and revered. The American eel itself is a mysterious creature, and in Maine, the elver fishery, the harvesting of tiny juvenile glass eels, is legendary in its own right. Just try mentioning elver fishing at your next dinner party. If you live in Maine, or maybe even if you don't, I guarantee someone at your table will say, oh, don't they kill each other over those things? Or... I heard fishermen get $10,000 a pound for those. Both of these statements aren't true, mind you, but the legend of this fishery has inspired BuzzFeed articles and clickbait. It's Maine's last Wild West fishery. Or at least it was. Today we're going to unpack some of the mystery surrounding the elver fishery, and we'll get as close to the eel as we can. The American eel is a catadromous fish, meaning it spawns in the open ocean and lives the majority of its life in freshwater ponds and lakes. It's mind-blowing, the life history that the eel has. This is Sarah Rademacher, the founder and president of American Unagi. You know, they all migrate to the Sargasso Sea. Every single eel that hits our coast was born there, but they don't necessarily come back to the same rivers. So, you know... An eel can, you know, drift, it can land in, you know, the Caribbean or can land in Canada or can hit our main coast. The American eel and European eel both spawn in the Sargasso Sea, a saline-rich sea located in the Bermuda Triangle. Although eels have never been seen, either mating or reproducing in the wild, the Sargasso Sea is widely accepted as their breeding ground, though it's not 100% certain. The tiny willow leaf-like eel larvae, leptocephali, are carried by ocean currents and find their way to rivers all along the American and European coasts. The larvae turn into juvenile eels, see-through small glass-like elvers that travel upstream to muddy freshwater homes where they'll live for as long as 30 years. The eel's reproductive mysteries have captivated scientists and thinkers for thousands of years. Aristotle believed eels were neither male nor female, that they sprang out of mud spontaneously. This theory was debunked, of course, but from the time of Aristotle all the way to the late 1800s, the eel's reproductive organs eluded the scientific community. This is because eels lack reproductive organs until they reach sexual maturity, right before they journey back to the Sargasso Sea. Then, and only then, do their sex organs reveal themselves. The mystery of the eel captivated Aristotle and Sigmund Freud, and ultimately a man named Johann Schmidt. Here's Sarah. You know, there's these crazy stories. The the guy who figured out that they were born in the Sargasso um, was a marine researcher who married uh, the uh, heiress of Carlsberg Beer, who apparently Carlsberg Beer was a big um, influencer on marine... uh, research that marine researcher was johann schmidt so he like made that happen and then was like cool love you i'm out and like spent 20 years or more on a boat drifting and just trying to catch smaller and smaller eels until he got to the sargasso and they found like really really tiny um leptocephali which is the larval stage so he was like all right it happened somewhere around here but that's like 
the last of it. And that happened, I think, almost 100 years ago, and they still haven't, haven't seen it. The mystery of eel reproduction is one major reason why Maine's elver fishery is what it is. The story goes like this. In the early 1970s, a fisheries attaché from Japan sent a memo to the state of Maine. The memo asked if the state could support a commercial elver fishery. The Japanese grew elvers to adult-sized eels in aquaculture ponds, and the fish is a staple of Japanese cuisine. In those early years, elvers were caught and sold for the same reason they are today. Even in 2021, it's not possible to breed eels in captivity. They have been bred, but then the larvae die. And so, in order to raise large quantities of eel for consumption, they must be caught in the wild and raised in aquaculture ponds or facilities. When the memo from Japan was sent to Maine, Bill Sheldon was a state employee with a degree in wildlife management. Sheldon developed methods to find and catch elvers and to keep them alive. Decades later, he would become embroiled in an elver scandal, serving six months in prison for knowingly buying illegally caught glass eels. But that's another story altogether. In the early 70s, though, Sheldon wrote the first official report on elver fishing in Maine, and he's referred to often as the grandfather of the fishery. Pat Bryant of Nobleboro started fishing for eels in the late 1970s, when a friend of her brother's, an eel farmer in South Carolina named Randall Livingston, asked if they could supply him with some elvers from Maine. And so we decided to go try it in New Harbor down at Pamaquid River, where I still am to this day. And um, that's where we that's where we decided to start. And we looked at him and went, oh, my God. And so we, we, ca- well, we catch him at that time. I remember we used to catch, oh, I don't know. If we caught 15 pounds, it was a crummy night, so we leave. So we used to catch around, I don't know, anywhere from... 85 to 100 pounds a night. Pat owned a hair salon, and pretty soon she and her entire crew of hairdressers were out in the rivers at night, fishing for glass eels and selling them to Mr. Livingston to raise on his eel farm in South Carolina. Well, we had crews. We sent, like I said, we t- I'd take a couple of my girls and Paul, they'd call it Paul's harem, and <laughs> because it was my, <laughs> my hairdressers, and he'd take, he'd take us and to one place, to one river, like to Pemaquid, and, and then my brother and couple of bankers and a few of his friends <laughs> fished over here in the Waldeboro River. Pat Bryant was fishing for elvers, and she was also dealing and transporting the fish. She worked on the South Carolina farm and would drive mature eels to Chinatown in New York City once a week to sell to the Asian markets. Other eels would be shipped live to Japan. We had to transport them to South Carolina at that point because the only uh, person that even shipped those was Flying Tigers. That was the only airline that even shipped them, and uh, we used to sh- we used to ship them in tanks, live eel tanks, like you have on the back of your truck. Mm-hmm. We put those on the airplane, and that's how they that's how they shipped them overseas. And it was several years before we figured out how to put them in, uh, you know, in the styrofoam line boxes and that sort of stuff. And we used to pack them out in the driveway at my house mm-hmm. and uh, ship them out. And sometimes we'd go to to uh, New York. To, like Korean Airway and put back them on the tarmac out there. You'd have to lug everything, all the oxygen, the eel, the water, and the whole business in the van and drive down there, and there we were. <laughs> it was fun. Pat was fishing and dealing elvers and eels at a time before regulations, and really, she and other dealers were inventing methods to deal with shipping the live mature eels. Like some other elver fishermen and dealers, Pat would travel from the southern U.S. to the north, chasing the eels as they moved into rivers in accordance with climate and temperature. It was a different time, to say the least. People were dragging them from one state to the next and doing this interstate. You know, if the, when you had one place, like if you had a people fishing it, they'd be go fishing South Carolina and say they came from Virginia, and, and then Virginia would... There was no fisheries there, so you had that. You had the federal authorities trying to figure out where people were going, and somebody was. We had one guy that was coming from here and going all the way down the East Coast, and buying all these eels and saying they were from here. Traceability has always been an issue in the eel market. Even today, elvers are shipped to China or Taiwan and grown in aquaculture ponds, and there's really no telling where the adult eels were first caught 
or if they were caught legally or poached. Now, Maine has the only substantial commercial elver fishery in the country. South Carolina does have a fishery, but the quota is incredibly small. The fishery is closely monitored, and regulations have tightened a lot, not only to protect fishermen, but to protect the eels, too. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Please note that today's show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. Today, we're featuring a couple of stories from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, highlighting stories of Maine seafood and the people who harvest and grow it on our coast. Glenn Melvin has been involved in the elver fishery almost as long as Pat. He was one of the first fishermen to catch elvers in Waldeboro. Uh, back in the late 70s, I was um, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old. So I was digging clams during the day and raising as much hell at night as I possibly could. What we used to do back then is we used to dig, uh, dip smelts at night. And I don't like smelts, so I'd give them away. So that's what we did as like night entertainment. There's a field in Waldebro, it's called Thomas's Hill. And me and a buddy of mine, the field actually sits on the edge of the river. And on the edge of that is a big stream with a large waterfall. And me and a buddy of mine, um, who was the same age as I was, used to back his Ford truck to the edge of the river. And we'd open the doors and turn the stereo on because the speakers were in the doors. And we'd go down and dip smelts. I had, used to wear a green army jacket that I bought at a lawn sale for five bucks. And I liked it because it had a lot of pockets and you could put a beer in every pocket. So I could pack it with a six-pack and head down over the side and dip smelts all I wanted. We even had favorite music. There was a song called Fox on the Run by The Sweet that we used to crank. And a smelt net makes an excellent air guitar. If you ever stood on top of a rock at 2 in the morning with a moonlight cranking Fox on the Run, it's just the coolest thing you could possibly... It's living. We did that for like six months, and I ran into a guy upstreet who said, did you know that the same time the smelts are running, there's these little glass eels, little baby eels, and there's a lady in Damascata who will buy them from you, hence Pat Bryant. So I said, no way. He said, all you have to do is uh, remesh your dip nets. So we did. We went home and took off the smelt size and made a real fine mesh net and went back down, and we dip elvers and smelts because you could take them with the same swipe and then we'd sort them out in buckets so then this is totally awesome because now i have beer money for tomorrow night some fisheries are born this way through word of mouth demand and trial and error glenn made his net out of mosquito netting those first years and he's been fishing for elvers ever since He's taken a year off here and there, but after regulations tightened in 1994, he's at the very least kept up with his license. People did start getting into it because it was at least some money. So some people, and some people did it to do it. It was cool. You know what I mean? It it was like when I got into scuba diving, it was a cool thing to do for sea urchins. So people did it just to say they did it. Some stuck with it. Some didn't. Uh, It was a very volatile fishery right up until recently. So you may go two years where they didn't pay anything for them, and it may not have been worth chasing for a lot of people. We did it only because it was always a sideline for us. Clamming was our, our, our breadwinning situation. The volatility of the elver fishery is where many of the rumors and legends arise. The shortage of elvers worldwide led to astronomical prices and price drops, In 2013, the juvenile eels fetched an average of $1,821 a pound. The next year, that price fell to $874 a pound. But since instituting more regulations, aside from price drops due to COVID in 2020, the price of Elvers has averaged between $1,300 and $2,300 a pound between 2015 to 2021. It is a high-priced fishery. And in the years leading up to 2014, the fishery was dominated by stories of illegal fishing, selling of illegally caught elvers, and cars riding around the state with wads of cash, guns, and ammunition to protect valuable catches. Uh, It needed to be regulated. It was chaos, hence 
people shooting at each other. But it was it was too volatile. We had a lot of um, a lot of illegal activity going on. If you didn't have a license, you sold them for a friend who went and got them in the middle of the night. It was too chaotic. We needed to do something to settle it down, and um, we took on regulations. We also needed to maintain the fishery. Um, once you start buying eels from over from other state lines, the FBI gets involved because it goes over state lines, and then their enforcement gets into it, and it costs these states a lot of money to enforce the fishery. So in order for us to maintain the fishery, we needed to regulate it tightly. Whether it was done exactly this way can be debatable, but it needed regulation, or we wouldn't have been able to maintain the fishery. East Coast fisheries would have shut us down, too. So it needed to be done, and this is where we are today. Both the American and European eel are considered endangered among some conservation groups, though it's really hard to pinpoint eel numbers because their exact spawning location is still unclear. But there has, decidedly, been a decline in the number of elvers in some coastal regions. And fisheries like Maine's urchin fishery, which also catapulted because of demand from the Japanese market, provide cautionary tales of taking too much of one thing at one time. In response to pressure from the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission, which proposed a closure of the elver fishery in 2014, the Department of Marine Resources instituted new quotas and monitoring of the fishery. The fishery now runs from March 22nd to June 7th. There are set quotas for tribes in the Wabanaki Confederacy, and the 425 license holders in the state are allowed a total of 9,688 pounds. The glass eels are caught with dip net or fike nets, conical-shaped nets that trap the elvers, or Sheldon eel traps. And there's other changes on the horizon for this particular fishery. As American consumers become more concerned with where our food is coming from, a demand for traceability is becoming more important. One person who is changing the eel story in Maine is Sarah Rademacher, the founder and president of American Unagi. I visited Sarah at the University of Maine's Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research in Franklin, Maine. Sarah is, she admits, from away, which in Maine just means you weren't born here. It's a catch-all. Sarah grew up in the Midwest, went to Auburn University in Alabama, and became enmeshed with aquaculture. In 2009, she volunteered with AmeriCorps in Maine. I ended up being here for about three years, working with a nonprofit, got to know the aquaculture industry, the community, and um, and then I, I left and immediately missed it. So I, wor- I went back abroad and, and worked um, for a large-scale commercial farm and I, after a year, I was like, you know, I, I think I want to, I want to live in Maine. I really love the community. Um, I wanted, I wanted to settle down and like have roots in some place, which had never happened to me before in my life. The drive to set up aquaculture here in Maine led Sarah to eels. She started experimenting with eel aquaculture in her basement after buying a handful of glass eels from one of the elver dealers that dominate Maine's Down East roadways when the fishery is open. Sarah was immediately struck by how well the fish did in a land-based aquaculture setup. She expanded her operations to the Darling Marine Center before moving her facility to the Center for Cooperative Aquaculture Research, a research facility and business incubator in Franklin. Sarah's system for growing eels is pretty different from the pond aquaculture happening worldwide because she works within the Maine community, directly with elver fishermen. Instead of elvers shipping across the world and back again to U.S. markets, American Unagi's products stay in Maine and ship domestically and internationally. And with eels in particular, like globally, it's known that this species has some big concerns because a lot of the fisheries aren't managed it's very high value, so there's worldwide poaching issues, black market issues. So having that accountability really, really differentiates us in the marketplace. Like, there's, as far as I know, no other eel that can say, you know, Pat fished these eels from the Pemaquid River and uh, used a pike net. You know, one thing too that differentiates our method of aquaculture is it's all land-based. So 
on this facility, we reuse over 95% of the water. So, and everything is indoors, it's controlled. So you're able to maintain the best growing environment for the fish. Uh, but it also means we know inputs and outputs of the, you know, our water usage, our power usage, all of that's very controlled. In American Unagi's aquaculture facility, the baby eels are separated in tanks when they come in from the wild to get them acclimated to an indoor life. They're then transferred to 28 different tanks where they'll grow to market size. It can take between 7 to 24 months for eels to mature to market size. They grow at variable rates. So once they're large enough, they'll go to holding tanks until they're sorted and ready to be sold either live, filleted, or smoked. So I had heard, you know, Eel, smoke deal was great so I borrowed a smoker watched a YouTube video and was like all right I can do this and it was incredible um I again I'm from the midwest anything fishy flavored I was like ugh but the eel is it's not like any fish that I've ever had it's it's super rich it's oily but unlike a mackerel that can get like that oily fishy flavor eel is like it's more like like bacon grease than like fish fat, which is bizarre. American Unagi is expanding. The company is moving to a 27,000 square foot facility in Walderboro and will experiment growing 600 pounds of elvers in spring 2022. Clamor and elver fisherman Glenn Melvin, a Walderboro resident, was initially skeptical of Sarah's proposal to operate in Walderboro. Glenn is, first and foremost, a clam digger, and he worries about pollution and the health of the rivers and shellfish beds that sustain his livelihood. So when Sarah first came to Walderboro with quote-unquote aquaculture, my first response was, no, you will not keep moving, girl. Find a different river because we don't welcome aquaculture. And that's how this is set up it is really, really interesting. The first thing Sarah did was she came before the shellfish committee to try to get their endorsement of her being in our river, which I thought took a lot of guts and a lot of spunk, and I appreciate her for doing that and explaining what her operation is. Uh, AU, uh, Sarah's American Unagi, um, it's land-based aquaculture. She will not take any coves. She will not lease any land. She, what she does is take water from the river use it for her eels, and then puts it back into the river. Now, she does this five miles, six miles upstream from tidal water. So she's not even affecting the tidal part of the Madomic itself. Our biggest concern is pollution. So I have spent much time talking with Sarah, and she's completely on board with. She heavily tests the water that goes back into the Madomic for fecal coliform, for other items that it will be monitored and cleaned and the water going back could be cleaner than actually what she took out. It's important for Glenn that Sarah approach the project by going first to the shellfish committee in Walderboro. And now he's in full support of American Unagi. He even sells some of his elvers to the company. So she, she's, she's strict as to what she wants because she wants a good product. She needs a very high success rate and if I sell her 100 eels she needs 90 you know 98 of them to live because they're worth so much and I need 98 to live because that's the only way I'll get more quota is to have her be a success that's the plan that's what we're all on board for that's why AU is in Walderboro that's why we're thrilled to have her here uh, the taxes she pays the people she hires all local for the year or two that it takes to grow the elver um, and then hopefully local fishermen will get more of her quota as time goes on, if she can expand more. So every, everybody will win if AU wins. So that's my highest priority. It, from where I'm sitting, all I can do is see it winning, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it happens. Operating a land-based aquaculture facility with connections to Maine's people and environment is an important component of American Unagi's business model. The historically volatile elver fishery could have a more stable future. The value of each individual elver increases when the fish is sold in Maine and raised in Maine. And American Unagi's final product is deeply connected to Maine's community. 
it is a purely local product. Something that um, to me drives me a lot in doing this business here is that it's connection. You know, that's one thing I, I loved immediately about being in Maine is that it's the first place that I've lived where I really felt connected to the community in a way that I hadn't in any other place that I've lived. And I don't know if it's the communities here are small, that people know each other, or, you know, there's the whole connection where a lot of people's jobs depend on the environment. So there's ultimately not only a connection to communities, but to the environment that people live in. So when I saw the opportunity with Eel, um, it made a lot of sense to me because there was an ability to connect this fish even deeper into the community. And to me, that's better for, it's better for the community, it's better for the eel species itself, and it also is better for the consumer. To sustain the elver fishery in Maine, residents in the state need to understand the fishery, the value of it to fishermen's livelihoods, and the great lengths that the Department of Marine Resources Maine Elver Fishermen's Association and other organizations and individuals are going to manage the fishery responsibly. And American Unagi provides consumers with an entirely new kind of eel product, one that can be traced directly to Maine's rivers and Maine's fishermen. You know when you purchase one of our eels, it not only supports the practices that we do with local production, with you know not using hormones or antibiotics, but also it supports the local fishermen. So it's that whole, you know, story that goes um, with the product, but it's, it's not just the story, it's the actual, like, connection of the fish to the area. I, I still haven't really gotten a good way to explain, like, how powerful that is to me um, doing this business. Thanks for listening to Coastal Conversations today as we featured these stories about sustainable Maine seafood. Thanks to Bree Warner, Thu Suskowitz, Jesse Baines, Justin Papke, and his crew. Thanks also to Sarah Rademacher, Glenn Melville, and Pat Bryant for their participation on these episodes. These stories were produced by Galen Koch of the First Coast as part of an Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up, which is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands and a partnership between the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Luke's Lobster, the First Coast, and Maine Sea Grant, which also sponsors Coastal Conversations. We are grateful to all of them for sharing their stories with Coastal Conversations here on WERU. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM or find past shows in the WERU.org Public Affairs Archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. We know some student loan borrowers are still coping with the pandemic and need some time before resuming payments. The Biden administration is extending the moratorium on federal student loan repayments until May. Loan payments were set to resume in February after being on hold since the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. With no guarantee of blanket loan forgiveness on the horizon, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says borrowers should take the additional 90 days to prepare for the moratorium's eventual end. I would also note for all the student, those who have student loans out there, uh, the president also renewed his call for all student loan borrowers to do their part as well by taking full advantage of the Department of Education's resources, considering income-based repayment plans or public service loan forgiveness. 
Meanwhile, President Joe Biden met with a White House task force to discuss ongoing supply chain issues ahead of the holidays. FedEx CEO Fred Smith told the president the nation has largely avoided a holiday supply chain crisis. The supply chain issues are not all solved, but there's a lot of effort underway to solve them. And we're optimistic that people will have a good peak season and uh, most of uh, Santa Claus's Products will be delivered to the consumers. The U.S. government is loosening sanctions on Afghanistan in an effort to reduce the strain on the Taliban-controlled country's fragile economy. In recent months, the country has been hit by a drought, the loss of foreign aid, and the freezing of currency reserves valued at $9.5 billion. On Wednesday, the Treasury Department said it would issue new guidance, making it easier for aid groups and the 